Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Kelvin Thompson from here at UCF Center for Distributed Learning. I'd like to welcome you to Collaboration Strategies in the Online Course Environment, part of UCF's faculty seminars in online teaching. Our intention in each of these brief 30-minute sessions is to provide a treatment of a topic relevant to online teaching while connecting our participants to an array supporting resources for detailed follow-up. So today's seminar will be successful in our view if you walk away with at least one new idea that you can put into action in your online teaching. I'd like to acknowledge the 10 or 11 folks here face-to-face. -face. I have a feeling there are more on their way here in our Center for Distributed Learning offices. And Beth, how many folks do we have online with us roughly? 14 folks online in real time. And we'd like to welcome those of you viewing this recording after the fact. We have folks accessing these faculty seminars year after year after year. We keep track of those things. So even if you're an, on, if you're an online asynchronous participant, thanks for joining us. Also, I'd like to acknowledge our online moderator, Dr. Beth Nettles. Our online participants are in good hands with her. So those of you face-to-face, -face, Beth is the representative of our online audience. And uh, John Pizzo, making sure that all works well from a technical standpoint. Now, those of you who are here physically, I'd like to direct your attention to the, the paper feedback form. Feel free to grab one of those and fill that out uh, at the end of today's session. Those of you online should be able to find the feedback form and a link to the presentation materials, uh, and Beth will direct you to that. Those of you face-to-face, -face, you'll find the presentation materials at the URLs up on either of the whiteboards in the room. In the feedback form for today's session, feel free to share any unanswered questions you have or any relevant ideas or resources that would benefit others, and we'll follow up with these after the session. So please join me in welcoming today's speakers, Pavel Zemliansky and John Rabel. John? Oh, hello, everyone face-to-face. -face. Hello, everyone online. Uh, thank you very much for coming to our session today. And uh, before we get started today, I wanted to uh, ask a question about our audience. So um, so the question is, have you assigned collaborative assignments in your classes or been assigned one as a student? So if you're online, go ahead and pick an option. Um, and then we'll give our online audience just a second to, uh, to, to fill that in. And if you're face-to-face, -face, go ahead and raise your hand if you have the first one. Yes, I've assigned. Uh, OK, wow. So we've got uh, quite a few. We've got about six or seven people face-to-face -face with the first option. So we've got a lot of people. How many for the second option? Uh, not in all my classes. I've just kind of dabbled. Okay, nobody, nobody face to face. Uh, only as a student have you worked online as a, in a group. Okay, and then who has not? Who has refused to do a, an, an online collaborative assignment? Wow. Okay, great. So everybody's uh, pretty familiar with um, the topic that we're going to talk about today. So, um, so hopefully today you'll take, uh, like Kelvin said, one of those. Uh, take something from our presentation and apply it into something that you're uh, most likely already doing. So uh, for our online audience, pictures of uh, Pablo and myself. And then uh, if you'll notice in the top of the slides, uh, you'll see our picture. Uh, so this is the actual person talking. So um, wanted to uh, point you out to that um, so the sound of my voice matches my picture. So today we're going to talk over the need of uh, virtual teams, talk uh, a lot of different collaboration strategies. We'll show you an example. Uh, Pavel will talk about uh, what he does in his class. And we'll wrap it up for Q&A at the end. So I'll go ahead and, and kick us off and get started. So first of all, the need for virtual teams. 
uh, for the next over the next three years, about 1.3 billion billion with a B uh, people will actually work virtually um, online. So it's it started back in the 80s. Uh, when we when we were able to uh, the communication technology started development, it ramped up in the 90s and the 2000s and the 2010s. Um, it's really really taken off. It's uh, I just read a recent article in the Harvard Business Review. That's where I got this uh, information. It's kind of like where it was in three different waves. First, you had freelancers, the people off doing it by themselves in the 80s, and in the 90s, um, you know people just wanted to work individually at home. And then communicate with the office, and then now it's like you have to deal with virtual colleagues. So it's like not just communicating with somebody um, at the home office, but communicating with somebody possibly across the world. Uh, so it, it's really gone into different phases. And there was a great quote um, by a by, by a worker at uh, at IBM. It's you know IBM stands for International Business Machines. She said it stands for I'm by myself. So it's it's really um, challenging to, to to not feel like I'm that person from IBM. I'm all by myself because you're not driving into work uh, every day. And then these these are the that's the the reality um, that we're that we're facing. Um, so we have to prepare our students to work in these types of circumstances. That's why I wanted to bring this up. And uh, like I said, technology is becoming less and less of a barrier. So if you notice with uh, you know, with, with Skype, with WebEx, with Adobe Connect, what we're doing here today, um, the technology is becoming less and less of a barrier that we don't have to have professional Hollywood um, type resources to do something that's still very uh, meaningful and reduced costs. That's something from the employer side is that they're interested in reducing costs. And of course, from the employee side, you want to have that uh, flexible work environment. So this is why we're here today, talking about how we can uh, how we can uh, in integrate these types of virtual teamwork uh, into our online classes. So I wanted to give you a few other examples um, from a few different fields. Number one, in information technology, uh, there's uh, there's a study that I that I read about a, a software company in India, and they did a study about uh, how like everybody wants to know how is effective. Can virtual teams be, and then they they determined a, a couple different factors uh, within their company. Number one was professionalism, is how uh, the different colleagues work together in terms of a professional manner. We've all had um, individuals in our in our own professional lives that displayed varying professionalism qualities. Let me just <laughs> leave it at at that. So that that's also very important. And then the, another one was about the the years in the profession. So it's like working with a 20-year vet versus somebody that's fresh out of an education program. So when we are talking to our students, especially at the undergraduate level, um, if they go straight into the workforce, we really have to keep in mind on how um, how they should interact with people who have been in the field. 10, 20, 30, 40 years, especially when it comes to working virtually, which that might be something very, very new to them. So that was a real interesting study that I read. Uh, also in, in business, um, I, read a, I read an article about, um, about developing e-business, especially in China. It's taking off. 
uh, like crazy over there in terms of, you know, what are those similar factors to be effective? You know, just like what we strive to in our online classes and our face-to-face -face classes, how do we make this effective? Um, and that they were saying that, you know, sometimes it's just great to pick up the telephone because it, uh, uh, the biggest thing in, in, in pulling their, their workers in, in this case study is that they miss the inflections. Because it's easy, easy enough to, um, easy enough to, to type and 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 not get and totally misconstrue something. We've done that. Uh, I've done that personally in email sometimes. No, no, no. That's not what I meant. Um, especially in, in my position here. But um, and, and then the the last one I wanted to talk about was education, especially uh, Florida Virtual School, uh, where you're you're dealing with your clients face-to-face, -face, and then you're also dealing with your colleagues face-to-face. -face. So this is the ultimate virtual environment. And um, there was a case study I, I read that, you know, they wanted to, to force teachers to actually work in teams online. So these are, these are veteran professionals who have been in the classroom, and then now, traditionally, they've done professional development face-to-face. -face. But now, okay, you know, we can't really do that since we're so distributed, so they wanted to form learning communities. And then they wanted to, um, but they didn't really give, you know, compared to business, compared to IT, there's a goal, there's a project, there's a task. This one is kind of loosey-goosey. Just, hey, whatever you guys want to talk about, you just have to work in at least a pair. So, um, so, the, the comments I read from that, or that was actually pretty refreshing, and it was actually something that um, really, really allowed them to work on their strengths, and that grew out of that actually more collaborative and almost team teaching into their classes, that they were able to, to form their own little social network and being able to determine that. So it's so I, as as you all uh, have um, have experienced, you know, teams can work in various ways. Oh, they can't hear me. Okay, it's coming uh, in and out. Okay. So um, with that, I'm going to turn it over to uh, Pavel now, and he's going to talk about how to assemble your student teams. Thank you, John. Um, can everybody hear me in the room? If I begin to sound like I'm yelling, it's because I'm trying to reach the online audience. I'm told that my voice is not loud all the time, so I'll be speaking as loudly as I can. So um, I will talk about sort of some strategies and options that we have for assembling virtual teams of students in our courses. Uh, but before I do that, I want to bring up again the idea that, um, in my view, there are two, two important reasons why online collaborations are important for our students. One, of course, is workplace readiness, as John has mentioned. The other one, I think, also is the idea that our students need to understand that they can learn from each other as well as from us. And I think uh, collaborations in all kinds of courses, face-to-face, -face, online, blended, help them understand that they can learn from each other and that working collaboratively is an important learning experience, not just getting them ready for the workplace. So um, I use um, virtual collaborations in my courses all the time. And those of you here in the room from writing know, of course, that in our field it's a big deal. There's a lot of, a lot of research uh, that points to the effectiveness of online work in professional communication, how it can be done really effectively. 
And so the first thing, of course, when you try to create a project for your students, um, which involves virtual teams, the first question we have to ask ourselves is, how do we put them together? How do we compose those teams online? Now, um, I'm going to say something fairly general that, of course, everything you do in your class depends on your discipline, depends on your field, and on your purpose and your goal. And so, of course, before we do anything, we need to figure out what exactly we're trying to accomplish with this project. So, in my field, professional writing, which is what I mainly teach these days, I want them to learn something about um, workplace realities, so to speak, about how people in the quote-unquote real world, the expression that I hate, by the way, because I think this is as real as it gets, right? Um, interact and communicate with each other in those kinds of virtual teams. So when I create my classroom, virtual classroom environments, I try to follow those same principles of which I know exist um, in the in the professions. So um, as far as uh, strategies for creating your student teams, there are several schools of thought in my field in published research. Uh, one is to um, group students together who have similar abilities and similar kind of uh, predispositions. And um, there are, of course, advantages and disadvantages to every approach. With this approach, the advantage is that um, everyone is likely to contribute equally. If you have students with similar abilities, they can sort of more easily divide and conquer the task and contribute more equally. The disadvantage, I think, uh, to that approach is that uh, no one really is being pushed beyond their comfort zone. We've done this before. We know how that's done. We're all successful at this. We're going to do it again. And so you may end up with a better written product, for example, at the end. But then uh, there's a danger that no one really learned anything new in that team because they already already knew how to do everything. Okay? The second uh, or a second option would be to um, group students together with different abilities and different predispositions, stronger students together with weaker, weaker students. The advantage to this could be, not guaranteed, but could be, that weaker students might learn something from stronger students. And it's possible, and it happens all the time, and it's not a bad thing. The disadvantage to this could be that weaker students kind of will fall to the, to the wayside, and stronger students will take over and do everything for them. Now, it's an assessment problem, of course, but it's also a problem from the standpoint of student learning, because then you end up with some people in your team learning a lot and doing a lot, and others just kind of feeling left out or slackened. Either way is not a good thing. A third way of doing this, and it sort of combines the first two, is to kind of group your students according to their character and learning style compatibility. So if you've taught this class for a while and you kind of know your students and you kind of know that this person does not get along with the other person, you know, don't put them together because they won't collaborate very well. <laughs> However, there could be an advantage to that as well because if your goal is to get them ready for the real world, they need to understand that in the real world, people don't always see eye to eye about stuff. Okay? And if they end up in a team where they need to negotiate with somebody where they don't, maybe they don't like somebody, that happens, right? We've all set on committees where things don't go smoothly all the time. And we figure out a way to, to work anyway. So um, while in such groups that are compatible all the time, interpersonal conflicts may be more rare. Um, Students in such teams may not learn quite so much about negotiating with each other when there is a conflict. So what we have to ask ourselves is this. When we assign collaborative projects, are we only after a perfect product 
or are we after a less perfect product which might actually teach students something we learn about the nature of collaboration? It's probably a false dichotomy. We probably want a little bit of each. But I personally think, and you know, research in my field at least seems to kind of bear this out, that learning long term about virtual collaboration can sometimes trump the production of a perfect product. So your students can learn from this experience something very, very valuable, even if they don't produce a perfect paper, presentation, whatever the end result that you're looking for could be. Okay. Now, um, of course, then the next question is, so what do I tell students about how to work in virtual teams? I have my teams composed, they're in Canvas, they're ready to go. How do I write the assignment? And again, this will depend on your field. It'll depend on the course. It'll depend on your objectives. But again, I'd like to offer some general principles that maybe we can think about together. So again, guidelines should be discipline-specific and goal-specific to your course and to your field and to the objectives that you have for your students later on. In my field, professional writing, we like to say that writing mediates work, which means writing solves problems. Writing is not done just to write. It's done to do something else. And so when people write in the workplace, they do so in order to accomplish something. Sell a product, negotiate a solution to something, advance a cause, something like that. And also, in the workplace, nobody is there to give you exact instructions for everything. Our students love instructions, right? They love to be told what to do from A to Z. They love to be told, this is what you do first, this is what you do second, and on and on and on. They don't learn much when we do that. And they're not really prepared very well for the realities of life if we give them everything on a silver platter. So when I create assignments for these teams, I create what we like to call a rhetorical situation for them, where most of the key ingredients are in there, but they have to figure something out on their own by speaking to me to each other, or as I will show you in a little while, as a client-based course to their client, an external person somewhere on campus. So I will deliberately leave some elements out of the instructions, out of the guidelines, and say, look, this is what you have, this is what you need to figure out, and here's how you might want to go about figuring this out. Um, again, because this is the nature of the beast in the field. This is how they're going to be treated. Um, life does not come with instructions, right, when they, when they work. And also, I'm really after something here that I think is really important long-term. I, I do want them to produce perfect papers, perfect projects, especially if they work with a client. That's sort of my reputation at stake here as well. But I also want them to learn something about virtual work and something about um, what, you know, even failures can teach them about what to do and not to do next. And then really quickly, um, then, of course, the next question is, how do we assess this kind of collaborative work? And um, this may sound really simplistic of me, but I'm actually, I actually think it's pretty easy to assess these uh, kinds of projects. Um, everybody in my teams gets the same grade. Everybody gets the same grade on the product. But they get different grades in the process, on the contribution. So my grades are typically divided into two halves, product grade, process grade. The product grade is the same for everybody because you worked on it as a team, you've created this thing, you've submitted it together, this is what you get. However, then I begin to look at each, everybody's contributions. And I don't like to split hairs, and generally the courses that I teach 
I haven't really had many cases where somebody really slacks off and disappears, but you know, there've been cases where some people contributed less than others, and then we figure this out and somebody might get an A for this process portion and somebody might get a B or a C. So that's, that's a strategy that I use. Now, I'm totally fine with the idea of collaboration versus cooperation. Now, when we think of collaboration and having our students collaborate, we kind of, I think, in the back of our minds, we often think that they will all sit around together and they will all figure out how to do everything together collaboratively. Um, they will not split up the task. They will do everything, right? That doesn't happen. It doesn't happen in the workplace. It doesn't happen anywhere. It doesn't happen in the classroom. So I'm personally perfectly fine with them saying, look, we have a large project to do here. Someone takes care of communicating with the client, primarily. Someone takes care of this, someone else takes care of that, someone else takes care of editing and putting it all together and submitting it to the teacher. I'm perfectly fine with that. So before they start, they give me that breakdown. And that also helps me assess their contributions at the end of the project. And there is a link of resources and assessment that is on this slide as well. Now I'm going to turn it back over to John and he will continue. Thank you, Paul. So uh, now that we've, we've learned the, 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 the theoretical and, and how to think about how we should assemble groups, now how do we actually do it? So uh, in using web courses at UCF, the, uh, uh, there is a group area. So it's located in the people area. And when you go into the people area, it's going to ask you, do you want to create a set of groups? Um, because actually with the technology, it's actually pretty, pretty nifty now. You can go through and create multiple sets of groups throughout the course. So if you want to switch up groups, you just don't have to have the same people together throughout your duration of the course. That's something I, I do in my course with, and that's called group sets. Um, and doing that, uh, you can have students sign up for groups. So you could go through and create different copy, topics and have them self-select. You can assign them manually. So I want, um, like Pablo was saying earlier, I want um, for this group, I want students who have the same ability levels to work together. So I'm going to put Tim, John, Kelvin all in one similar group. Or I can let the computer do it uh, automatically. I can say, hey, I want three people per group and let the computer go through your class roster and uh, have them do it automatically. So it's actually, uh, from a technology perspective, um, the management of, of, of setting up your groups are, are, uh, is pretty, uh, pretty simple. Uh, so in the groups, what tools do you have access to? So you have access to pages, which are, um, it's the wiki page, just like uh, if you use them to display content to your students now in your modules area, you have them, uh, students can create their own, can edit their own just like you do, uh, just for that particular group. Uh, you also have an area called collaborations, uh, and then, uh, bless you, and then this is uh, where you have two different tool options, uh, Google Docs and a tool called Etherpad. Uh, also, you have conferences area, so if you've ever done a web conference before, students can host a live conference just like how we're doing now, either audio, video, or being able to type in display documents uh, real time. And then also, um, there's a discussion board. So 
I'm not going to talk in depth about these particular tools, um, but these are the tools available, and there's uh, a lot of resources uh, available on these tools. I'll, I'll, I'll go in a little bit about Google Docs because uh, this is the tool I wanted to focus on uh, because this is the, the tool that, that Pavel uses in his courses. It does require a Google account. When a faculty asks me, that's the number one question I get from faculty. So yes, it does require a Google account. Um, and then as you'll see in, in, in a minute, uh, it does have the most detailed um, revision information, just like how Pavel was saying, in terms of, of how do I, I want to assess the contribution rather than the overall um, scope of the project where I want to individually assess. This tool allows you very, very detailed information on how, uh, on, on student contribution, it's all time stamped and it'll actually go through, you can click on and see uh, what items the students have changed. If you use a tool like Pages inside of web courses, you don't get that detailed level of information. Um, it does have the add-ons area. So uh, if you're looking to do something uh, outside of the box, there is um, flexibility to, to have that as well. And it is the most complex, um, where it does require the most time for you to, to set up and then to also manage, there's a lot more buttons, a lot more clicks, but it, it's a trade-off. It is the most powerful, and it'll give you that uh, revision information. Okay, so uh, <clears throat> sorry. this is a, um, an example of me using a Google Doc in a graduate class on proposal writing. And what I'd like you to, to see here is not so much the text that the students wrote, but how on the right-hand side you have that bar that allows you to see all the revisions by all the students that used uh, this document. This was a client-based course, which means that uh, teams of students worked with external clients, clients external to UCF, on uh, preparing real grant proposal uh, projects for nonprofits. So five different grant projects that they worked on. And the document here is the um, the sort of the initial inquiry letter, I believe, that they wrote for the for submitting it to the client. Um, what I'd like to, again, emphasize here is that tools are really secondary to what you're trying to accomplish for these teams. Our main uh, sort of workspace here was the Google Doc, because we wanted to create collaborative documents accessible to the students, to me, and also to the client. But we also used other tools. When I taught this class, the conference feature in Canvas did not yet have a recording capability, I don't think. So we use something called freeconferencecalling.com, which allows you to set up group conference calls on the phone, and it's free, and you can record MP3 files and put them on the website. So in addition to working here, the students also use that as a secondary tool. But the point here is that the tools are really secondary. So once you've created your outcomes, your objectives, and your sort of general assignment, then you can look at Canvas and decide which tools do I want to use. Do I want to use Google Docs, do I want to use Pages, conferences, whatever. I like Google Docs, as I said, because it lets me see the revisions and it also easily allows students to create pretty robust, um, you know, editing spaces comparable to Microsoft Word and things like that, where we could move text and, and all that. So that's that's the example that I'd like to, to, to share. And, um, you know, I used to keep 
kind of worrying that students will get stuck somewhere. They won't be able to access the document. They won't be able to use their Google account. It doesn't happen. They, they figure it out probably better than we will how to use these kind of spaces. And with that, that concludes our, our presentation. And we'll now, uh, we'll now we will uh, open it up for questions. And we had uh, one here from our virtual audience from Amy Gregory. Wow, that's a that's a very detailed question. Uh, uh, let's see, how can I assign time for particular resort hotel within a smaller group? So uh, what I would do is I'd actually create the groups based on the resort hotel. So you kind of have all of all of that all of those students together, um, maybe working on that one, or uh, allow them to self-select. Uh, if that's an option. Um, also, how can I assign peer reviews within small groups? Uh, that peer review with small groups from a, a tool perspective doesn't really exist in, in Canvas yet, but uh, probably if you have any thoughts on that. Well, um, for peer review, I use uh, as well, I use Google Docs. So I would then, you know, once the students have written something in a Google Doc, I share that document with, with two or three peer reviewers from another team. Um, so I have teams reviewing other teams, essentially, if that's what you're after. Um, otherwise, if it's an individual product within a group, um, they already have access to that Google Doc and they could see each other's work. They could copy and paste their writing, for instance, into one Google Doc. That way, all members of a team uh, can see um, each other's work. I do want to add something about peer review, though. From a technical standpoint, it's relatively easy to set up on Canvas. But it's, you know, in order for it to be successful, um, I, we know from our field that students need to be trained how to be effective peer reviewers. They don't just, they're not born able to do that. You have to actually teach them, um, give them some strategies. And if you're interested, I'll be happy to talk to you later because I'm the work director. That's what I do right across the curriculum. I'm happy to, to tell you more about it. Okay. So we have a question, another question from our online audience about how to use a, a collaboration strategy in engineering. And that's a great question because that's uh, a lot of uh, a lot of focus now has been focused toward towards the STEM fields, um, and I, I think it's it's great to have it either project based or learning groups or being in like Pavel said, depending on the discipline and depending on your objectives, you can incorporate that. Uh, that's where you can throw in some some problem based learning, um, being able to uh, to to write reports. Uh, there, there's a there's numerous ways and it all depends uh, kind of on the size of your class as well uh, that's a, also a, a, a big factor in terms of what you're going to ask your students to do so I would um, I, I would focus more on, on 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 the tasks that engineers are asked to do in that specific class think of uh, then how I could bring those um, that that in together as, as a problem based or something like that Believe it or not, our time officially has run its course uh, here. So thanks again uh, very much, Paul and John. And let me just encourage everybody, online or face-to-face, -face, we've already seen a lot of good questions and, and engagement online. I'm sure those of you face-to-face -face have a bunch of questions as well. Please jot those down in your feedback form. What we're going to do is we're going to compile those. And uh, Pavel and John have, have agreed to uh, consolidate some responses, and we'll distribute those back out. So you can see some more thoughtful um, 
responses to uh, what in some cases are very complex scenarios, right? So again, uh, your, your responses to the feedback form would be very helpful uh, to us because it helps us improve each of these seminars. And um, if you have ideas for future topics um, uh, or suggestions for improving the seminars, please jot that down as well. Again, let me direct your attention to the session uh, web resources page. Face-to-face -face folks, you'll see those on the whiteboard. In the online space, you'll see that in the web links pod. Uh, shortly after today's session, you'll see the recording link um, post up there, but you, are, you already have supporting resources and slides available. Um, see if there's anything else I've forgotten to tell you about. Uh, we will be following up with a, with a follow-up email that'll, that will uh, provide the link to these resources as well, just in case you forget. And um, feel free to go and browse around the Faculty Seminars webpage. You'll find that there's uh, archived resources for the last couple of years of seminars, and, and you'll find insights on a variety of topics there. If you have, um, uh, again, any topics or interest in presenting in a faculty seminar, please let us know that as well. That being said, please join me in thanking Pavel and John, and have a great rest of your day.